Hello, how are you? Welcome along to the podcast, Sport and Life. Thank you for hitting on the button. Great to have you here. Thank you to the sponsors, Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serena AV, as ever. They are specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high-quality customer service and installations. Bang Olufsen, Cheltenham House, not far from me in Montpellier, in the picturesque courtyard here in Cheltenham in the west of England. But you can obviously check out the Bang Olufsen, Cheltenham website wherever you are in the world or indeed uh, you can contact them on the website Bangalore and Cheltenham and then call them Jason Briggs and his team for a bespoke consultation and it doesn't have to be just Bangalore fine equipment it could be a big screen from another brand whatever you're looking for because through that company Serene AV they do source audio visual equipment from uh, all, all across the world whatever brand fits your vision and your budget also thank you to Cytoplan for their continued association with the podcast Cytoplan food-based supplement company Again, not far from me, actually, in the west of England, just as you come up to the uh, the gargantuan, beautiful Malvern Hills in the village of Hanley Swan, just outside of Malvern there, as you approach the uh, kind of vista there in there in a picturesque village. And apart from that, they offer great food-based supplements as well. My father, Dr. Mark Draper, has been working as a consultant with them, my dad being a doctor, a GP practitioner by day but also a micronutritionist and has lectured in micronutrition fascinated by trace elements and the relative depletion of those elements in the UK soil particularly selenium and zinc is areas that he's looked at and I know zinc's been mentioned in the COVID-19 discussions as well over the past year or so so cytoplan.co.uk is the place to go for a discount with the podcast you can use the code Draper10R, my last name, D-R-A-P-E-R, all capital letters, the numerals one zero and the capital letter R. Cytoplan, by the way, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk is the web address. I take Immune Complete 2, which is an all-rounder in terms of a multivitamin or vitamin, which includes things like selenium and zinc, but also vitamin C, vitamin D3, which even in the summer months here in the UK at the moment, it's very cloudy, probably worth just having that in your system. And I take fish oil as well for, for repair and, and skin and, and things like that. So that's my kind of basis. And then I try and add glucosamine and things to my joints on occasion, but cytoplan.co.uk, extensive option of supplements there. And Draper10R is your discount code, 30% off up front, I believe. And then any further purchases in the future, 10% discount. So appreciate you getting involved with that. And I hope you are well and fit and healthy. Let's get on to the guest today. It is uh, Steve Guinan, who is um, fantastic, tra- well-traveled footballer. He called himself a journeyman. I'd never do that. But he is um, experienced, shall we say, started at Nottingham Forest, where he was a youth player with uh, a friend of mine, a friend of the podcast, John Finnegan. Finner's former Cheltenham player a long-standing Cheltenham player, worked on the business side at Cheltenham, now got a job at Gloucester City, had a commercial. He put us in touch. Steve and him played together again at Cheltenham, reunited, won promotion in the era sort of 2004, 2007 under the manager, John Ward. But Steve has gone on to coaching and really well-respected voice in the world of coaching, senior professional game player to coach, lead at the FA now, the Football Association in England, which is basically helping players who are coming to the end of their careers transfer and segue into coaching and, and not only just the sort of fundamentals of tactics and, and sort of, I guess, drills, but the, the philosophical approach to it, how to get jobs, how to handle it and how to handle perhaps getting opportunities before their time as well. We talk about that here, high profile players, maybe given management positions when perhaps their coaching CV doesn't necessarily prepare them for it early in, but they've got that profile, got that name. So it's a fickle business, but fascinating character, Steve Guinan, former Cheltenham striker, played at Hereford United as well around this part of the world and at Forest Green, another Gloucestershire club towards the end of his career as well. Kidderminster Harriers is where he wound up, up the road, up the M5 in Worcestershire. Fantastic guy, I believe based in, in Worcester area at the moment. So here he is, Steve Guinan. Steve Guinan, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Not bad at all for a Monday morning. Just recovering from a game you said yesterday. You, you're stretching the legs and 11 aside. Yeah, um, it was actually for for ex-Forest player Gary Bertles. His wife, Samantha Bertles, uh, recently passed away from, from cancer. So um, it was a, a whole host of former uh, Forest players that got together in Nottingham. And uh, it was good, managed by Nigel Clough. The opposition is managed by Kevin Keegan. Mm. Uh, lots of other players rolled out to to hopefully raise money for a good cause, but feeling very sore this morning, yeah. Yeah, I bet. It's always a shock to the system. As much as you might work out when you play 11-a-side football, it gets you after not playing it for a while. Gary's a lovely guy, isn't it? Really sad to to hear that as well. Worked with him at Sky Sports. Quite a sort of, um, just a warm character, isn't he, Gary Bertels? 
Yeah, and I think, you know, my son came with me yesterday and people forget about actually what he did in the game and for what mm. a, what player he was in his era. So, um, you know, such a such a shame, tragic news, but for him to be part of it yesterday and to see that everyone was willing to to give up the time, there, there was probably, I don't know, estimated, you know, 1,500, 2,000 fans there with social distancing in place, loads of people bought virtual tickets. So hopefully there'll be a large amount of money, you know, raised for Treetops Hospices, which is a charity. Oh, that's great to hear. It's interesting that, as well that you've still got that connection with Forrest. Obviously, you spent a long time there in your youth before moving on because I'd immediately said um, John Finnegan, former Cheltenham Town player, put us in touch. And my initial thought was, oh, they played together at Cheltenham. But then, as, as you were talking about before we started recording, actually, you shared your sort of teen and, and early youth together in at Nottingham Forest. That must have been, a, I guess, a, quite a magical time. It would have been initially under Brian Clough, wouldn't it? Do you remember much of, of Clough? Yeah, well, I'm sure John's told you. Yeah, the, the the first year was actually a pretty bizarre year with with Cluffy in charge, and mm. probably quite, quite tragic, really, because that was the that was his final year in charge, and when Forrest got relegated out of the Premier League in in his first season. But um, you know, even then, you know, as I'm sure John said, he had that aura around him. He commanded respect. The the, the players listened to him, and you know, you think back in that dressing room. Then we had Roy Keane, Teddy Sheringham, Stuart wow. Pearce, Nigel Clough. It was it was fascinating to be a part of, and it, you know, for your first full time year in professional football, my God, did it open your eyes to it. <laughs> so, but yeah, Nottingham Forest was it was a huge club and still is. But back then, they had a a massive amount of success. You know, it was only a few years before that mm. they were in the FA Cup final with the famous incident with Gazza and, you know, Gary 91, Chappell. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, fascinating, you know, part, you know, a, a fragment really just to be around that club in my early years. But yeah, brilliant times and, and, and fantastic memories. Yeah, it would have been towards the end of, of Brian Clough's career. And we know he wasn't that well towards the end either, but were, were there sort of nuggets that you took from him? Obviously, your, your career in coaching now, is there something, it's not maybe what the training ground was like in terms of setup, but something that he used to do psychologically, man management, he's always praised for that. I think probably more than anything, he just he, he just had a, a knack of knowing how to get the best out of the players. And um, he knew who needed to kick up the backside, who needed an mm. arm around the shoulder. And whether that be Stuart Pearce, who was you know one of the England legends at the time, <laughs> or, or, or one of the young lads coming through, he just knew how to make, make players feel comfortable. Um, and that's probably, you know, resonated with me down the years and a number of managers in, you know, in recent years have also said the same, you know, the connections with the players are more important than tactics and strategies. If, if you learn how to get the best out of them, you, you, you're almost there. Yeah. And it's interesting that Roy, you mentioned Roy Keane, that he obviously worked under Sir Alex Ferguson, who I believe he kind of begrudgingly does give praise to, but he's very effusive about Brian Clough, in particular, the clarity of messaging. And he says the most powerful thing I think Clough said to him was get the ball when you get at the start of the match, give it and work your way in. Your first touch is the most important. That's interesting, doesn't it? Does that resonate with you? Sometimes I suppose you're in the midst of technical and tactical debriefs for these coaches, but actually sometimes for a player, it's just getting that that flow state or just getting into it at the start of the game. Oh, yeah, I think if anything now, coaches and managers are overcomplicating things. It's... Um... You know, it was only a couple of weeks ago I was I was on a course that I was tutoring on and the, the, the amount of information that is out there now with data and physical statistics that come in and you know going back to to myself in a dressing room as a player mm -hmm. there's only so much stuff you can you can actually yeah. understand and try and implement on the pitch you know if you've got set pieces and people to pick up in both boxes and you've got your own game to concentrate you've got information from a scouting report on the opposition and their strengths and weaknesses and you're playing a different team from the week before and there's slight subtleties to that. It's, you know, I'm going into it and my brain's struggling to take all that. <laughs> yeah. and, that and that's in a classroom, it's hard enough, let alone in the midst of the, the cut and thrust exactly. of a game. Yeah. When, yeah, when the emotions are running high and oh, it's it, it's it, it's almost impossible. So I think it's a, it's an art in itself, really, and a skill from the coach and the manager to, to almost filter all of that stuff down to make it simple for the player. So, so absolutely, just some simple messages now. Yeah, and I suppose that's especially for the, the players in, in your role now because you're taking what players who are coming to the end of their career and, and helping them bridge a gap into coaching. Is that kind of um, something that's, that was sort of personally passionate to you after your, your journey in football? Um, yes, probably. Not, not that I, I recognised it at the time, but, um, you know, there's so many players who who have had fantastic careers and, you know, and you talk about the, the best ones in the world in our country that have played in you know, European Championships, World Cups, Champions League finals. And 
we think we know it all you know playing yeah. 500 600 games yeah it certainly gives you an advantage but you know when you go back to being a coach you're actually on the bottom rung of the ladder again you're starting from mm. scratch because you know you could have had a coach who who's had well who hasn't had a career or only played a handful of games but all the experience they've built up while players have been clinging on to to the last few <laughs> years of, of a career is probably the wrong way to do it so um you know they're, they're in a better position so I, I think now it's it's almost trying to get an understanding of of the game going back to basics to understanding some some simple some some simple simple messages some fundamental basics um, and, it, and it's a real wrestle with some of the coaches, well, some of the players that are transitioning into coaching now because it takes them a little bit of time to understand where they are in the world and that they're not deemed as being one of the best people in their in their new career of a coach mm. or a manager. They are going back to the very bottom. Yeah, do you see this distinction between coach and manager? Because it seems sometimes a high-profile player might get that manager's role, which is strange in a sense because that's the, the top job in, in a way. But maybe is, is coaching a better first step for an ex-player just to work their way into the system and I suppose a different mindset of being a not not a player now, you're being on the other side of it. I think possibly. I, I think you're right. I think in the respect that a lot of the players will, for for whatever reason, probably purely due, due to profile, will get an opportunity in the senior end of the game and often it is the first-time manager. But you mm. know, when you work your way through the coaching pathway, it is what he says on the tin, it's coaching. So you have to learn how to develop uh, your own sort of playing style, your philosophy, learn and build your way up from coaching individuals to units to teams. And you get an understanding of that, but there's not a great deal, particularly on the coaching courses in terms of actually management, managing a team. And that has changed over the last 18, 24 months for the better. Mm. But and, that, and that's part and parcel of the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing with the international player to coach role. But a lot of these um, high profile names will get a manager's job. And the statistics tell you, and we've done a lot of good work with the PFA and the LMA on this and the EFL in the fact that if yeah. people do go into those first times role, it's actually you know, almost 70, 75% of them will actually never get another job because the chances are they're going to fail in that first time job. Wow. So what we're trying to do is bridge that gap and say, well, actually, if you are going to get a, you know, a potential opportunity purely because of your playing background, well, let's help you with everything we can to try and give you give you a better chance of being a success in that in that role. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Look at the the ex England pros at the moment. You had Stephen Gerrard with the success at Rangers. Frank Lampard had sort of the, the relative success at Derby, and then Jetson from from Chelsea after trying to build a, a team there. And then and Ryan Mason at twenty nine years of age thrust into the the Tottenham job to replace a, a legend like Jose Mourinho. It's it's a bizarre world, isn't it? Because in some way you have to approach it in a structured fashion. But I suppose you know with your life in football, it can be it can be a sort of helter-skelter one where opportunities jump out of nowhere when perhaps you're, you're not quite ready. Yeah, it's. I think that's the most difficult challenge we have is in terms of actually trying to structure your, your playing career to come to an end, gaining some experience coaching while that is happening. So you're in a better position when you actually, you know, make that make that lunge um, into the <laughs> new coaching management world. And that, that, pretty much what happened to me was the former where I was probably clinging onto a playing career at Northampton at 34-ish and yeah you know I, I thought I'd, I'd already got my coaching badges I'd aligned those up to the time I'd got my A license and I I went to see the manager and the chairman at the time at Northampton at Christmas time and I went listen I'm in and out of the side more than happy to walk away they were more than happy to get rid of me <laughs> get me no. off the books and but, but I, I decided that I wanted to be in control of my own destiny. I'd gone straight into a coaching role then and learned, you know, made loads of mistakes in the first two or three years. But, you know, what a good sort of learning ground it was. And I think the opposite of that is potentially happening now where players are clinging on for an extra year or two. And, and I totally understand that because, mm. you know, players still want to play football. That's been their passion and their love for 15, 20 years. But what's it doing really It's probably doing them a disservice because their first coaching and management role may be where it's the results end of the business and three points are on the line and there's, there's fans in attendance and, and all of a sudden, as I said, you know, alluded to, if, if you're not a success in that first role, you're going to probably fall out of the game altogether. So it's, it's a real difficult one, but we are trying to relay some of that information now and educate players particularly about, you need to start thinking about coaching a lot earlier in your, in your playing career. 
Yeah, that's a good, it's a good thing. I mean, more generally, it's about that transition, isn't it? Because when you speak to athletes from different walks of life, and I've spoken to elite Premier League players who are very affluent financially, but then it, it, there is a sense of uh, danger of depression once you once you finish playing because there's a void and there's people who play lower league football have a, a sort of financial imperative to have a second career. And we were put together by John Finnegan, who's, who's gone into the business side of football. It's, it's, he's now head of commercial at Gloucester City, actually, over the last few days. So people have... Have navigated those those pathways, but I suppose in general, Steve, is, is the message that you have to see it coming in a sense and, and make those preparations towards the end of your playing career. But then again, you're never quite sure when the playing career ends. So the earlier, the better, I suppose. Well, I think what you've just described would be best practice, wouldn't it? But mm. that it just doesn't happen. You're right, especially with all the the mental health issues that surround itself with uh, retirement transitioning there's a lot of football players genuinely don't know what they're going to go into when the playing career finishes and then you know whatever industry players transition into that there are some formal qualifications that are attached to that mm. um you know that that's pretty much why i wanted to control my own destiny because in the playing world pretty much your contract finishes at the end of the season and that's it you don't get you stop getting paid four weeks later yeah uh, and if you're like myself who was a you know <laughs> majority of lower league journeyman you've got bills to pay you've got mortgages to pay and i didn't want to be in that position and even if you are you know as you mentioned the most affluent what's your motivation to get out of bed every morning there's only so many days you can get up and go on the golf course and yeah um, and go to your villa in Dubai if that's what you do. You know, there has to be a driver internally. And you're young, most... aren't you? Young, you're a young man or young woman, typically. Yeah, and I, and I think what I'm trying to explain to people now is, well, if you're fortunate to have, you know, got involved in professional football at 16 and played till you're 35, 36, that's 20 years, but you've actually got more time left mm. of working. So if you're going to go into, if you're one of the lucky few that actually go straight into a job in football or another industry at 36, you've actually got another 30 years. So actually <laughs> that part of your life is actually longer than your playing career. And um, for you to actually get an opportunity in a role that you're going to be passionate about, you're going to enjoy then, you know, the, the period of qualifying to do that is actually a good few years as well. And people don't think about that. So we are trying to constantly get that message out there of, you know, how can we help you plan earlier transition, whatever industry you're going to go into even if it's not football, let's try and help you because it's not that straightforward. Yeah, Steve, do you, did you have a sense of almost relief when the, the playing career came to end? Because looking at it's a wonderful story career from Nottingham Forest for you, but I think it's, it's double figures in clubs, isn't it? You spent a lot of time in this area with where I live in Cheltenham with Cheltenham, but Hereford United. I know you ended up at Kidderminster Harriers up the road as, as well, played down at Plymouth. So you sort of centred yourself sort of middle and southwest, it seemed. But it, was it a sense of relief that the sort of nomadic life was coming to an end almost when you, when you transitioned into the coaching? Yeah. Uh, it definitely was no Maddie kid. It was 15 clubs in total. Um, <laughs> and I don't need a sat nav to know more way around the country. <laughs> no, it's good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to a degree. Yeah. I mean, again, it's people look at football and they think it's so glamorous and everyone wants to be involved in football. And, and rightfully so. It's a brilliant sport. I had a fantastic experience for 20 years playing for all those clubs and all the players and the fans and promotions and relegations. And I wouldn't change it for a moment. But there is a degree of, oh, great, well, I don't have to move 200 miles away now and I'm mm. not going to see family because I'm travelling two or three hours a day. And um, I think when, you know, particularly some of my friends and family, when you tell them some of the stories, and, and, and don't get me wrong, you know, there are some some people within football who I worked with and some former managers who, were, who even now look back and I just thought, how did you ever get that role? Because they weren't the greatest and some of the <laughs> were, you know, they were, they were terrible, but... You know, the, the world is changing for the better. And, and, I, and I think, you know, I'd encourage everyone to stay in football. But there is a point now, even, and, and you mentioned it before, I've spoke to a number of other athletes and sportsmen for, from different sports. And there actually is a sense of relief to go, oh, I'm glad that's over, which <laughs> to a degree is fine. But then the biggest question mark is, well, what's next? Yeah. Yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge question mark, isn't it? And I just wonder, it's interesting, Michael Duff's fantastic success. I think he's got Cheltenham to win the League Two title on the 17th biggest budget. Mark Halliwell, a local journalist, told me in the division. And it's speaking to Michael when he first got the job was, was fascinating because A, his phone kept going with Sean Dyche on it. So he was getting a, a sort of first top quality mentor all the time. But he, 
he said that he was going to get an I think an hour, hour and a half radius of players. He was pushing for two year contracts versus one to give people a certainty and a structure. He wanted people who primarily were able to base themselves in this area because of the human aspect of it. And I suppose Michael is someone that's played up from, I think, the eighth tier of football all the way to the Premier League. So you had a sense of, of people in the different divisions. How prudent would you think that is to, to look at the human side of, of the players when you're when you're coaching or managing it particularly at those low levels where it's there is a lot of flux or has been a lot of flux typically well I, I think it's really um it's very strategic in the first place but I'd probably suggest that that Michael's done the best thing and it, it goes back to what I said before you build the connections with the players and I think I always think about the person before the player and if you can look after that you're halfway there. I mean, I can remember going back to my days at Cheltenham and, and John Ward was manager. And I think mm. within the first few days of signing, I can remember stretching in the warm up and, and John came across to me and asked how I was, asked how the weekend was, how was the family? And that was the first time I'd actually had anyone really care about <laughs> me off the pitch and what my life was like. And, you know, John was a very shrewd guy and obviously had his success with Cheltenham. But, you know, the guy, I still speak to John now and, um, you know, I don't think it's rocket science to understand if you if you get people right off the pitch and the family's right, they've got the right lifestyle, they're happy, you, you tend to get the best out of the people on the pitch. Mm. So I think Michael's probably, you know, obviously worked with John. Michael was there just leaving actually for Burnley within pre-season when I first joined. And I think he's probably looked at what John did with Sean for a number of years at Burnley. Um, and I probably think he's put two and two together uh, very shrewdly and he, he's got a formula now that's working for him. But yeah, you know, that, that nomadic lifestyle, as you mentioned as well, if you're only ever on one-year contracts, you can't sell. You want actually a chance to make a good go at things and have a good crack at it. So um, Michael's mm. probably uh, way ahead of other, other peers in the same division, to be honest. Yeah, it's, I suppose it's a shifting thing, isn't it? Because Ben Smith, uh, former Crawley Town player, played at Hereford and I think had talks with Martin Allen when Martin Allen was jumping the manager, never came across, but wrote a fascinating book called Journeyman, which sounds like a boxing book, but it's actually a football one. And he he wrote about, I think it was the sort of sort of landmark age, which is a very young age for most people in their career. I was just starting out in journalism, but at 25, of, of shifting from being a sort of asset to maybe a, a non-profitable commodity for clubs. And then realizing that his friends at home, I think he's from Essex originally, were buying houses, starting to settle down and almost moving past him. Was that a sense that, that you got as a player that, that you, almost suddenly you were, your career was in sort of fast forward, wasn't it, compared to other people around you in non-football channels? Yeah, I actually played with Ben at Hereford. So, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I know Ben really well, and I think I feature in that book quite a few times. Yeah, I think you've um, yeah, thinking about it. It's been a few years since I read it, but yeah, it's, it yeah, always stuck with it, me. The, the theme of it stuck with me, just his, his general feeling of uh, a depiction of the lifestyle. Yeah, and, you know, a smudge, as I call him, again, very intelligent person off the pitch and uh, doing well for himself now as a coach at Brighton. But yeah, yeah you're right. I mean, you know, my, my best friend's outside the game. Um, you know, they've got their own careers and went to university and started to put roots down. And I think then I was probably on about club number six and <laughs> moving around <laughs> the country. So, yeah, hadn't bought my own house. And it, it was one of those things where, you know, it's the it's the hair and the hair and the tortoise thing. It's, you know, football career can go off very fast and peaks and troughs. And you can be at one club and be, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. Six months later, you can be the worst player on the pitch, the manager's changed, you're out of the plans and mm. you're in a part of the country where you don't feel settled. You know, I had my own issues with Plymouth where, uh, and I've told this story before, where the, the Kevin Hodges, who was the previous manager, signed me on a two-year contract. Three months later, he was sacked. Paul Sturrock came in. Oof. Two weeks later, he went, you're not my type of player. I don't want you to ever play for the club again. You can't train. Wow. Uh, my whole life had just turned upside down in a matter of weeks. And I don't think in any other industry you'd get away with some of the things that you do mm. within football. Um, and, and there is a, there is an aspect to what you mentioned about, you know, other people have careers, but their careers are long-term careers that can last 20, 30, 40 years. And mm. football career, you try and maximise everything you get. And, you know, every, you know, every single playing career is totally different. And I think the average playing career, according to the PFA, is six or seven years. Yeah. And what you get, because six or seven years, you, you you just don't know, and that's why some, you know, some people rightfully look at some of the the big money gets issued and banded around for the top players in the world. You know, the Messi's, Ronaldo's, Gareth Bale's, etc. 
But there's a piece of me that thinks, you know what, milk it. Take every single penny you can mm. get because it's the clubs and the people behind the boards that are giving you them. So if they think you're, you justify that type of contract, go ahead and take it. But what they don't see is the people in, you know, the Conference North, South, National League, League One and League Two, who are literally fighting from year to year to pay the mortgages. So they're not mm. the you know, they're not highest paid players in the world so for them they're just like your normal fan down the road who, who's on pretty much probably an average wage or just a little bit better yeah bunking in premier inns or travel lodges or whatever it might yeah. be if you don't live in that in, live in that area it's a, it's a thorny issue as well in football isn't it because a lot of people talk about loyalty and then you, as you say the other side of it is that clubs won't employ players just for the, the sort of nice feeling of it so that's always a, a questionable a questionable concept but I mean for me you know someone who never made it as a professional football I'm still very envious of anyone who plays the game whether I go to Chelsea's Cobham training ground which is fantastic or Cheltenham's down the road and actually think you know what this is fantastic this for a living but I think the more you speak to people the more prudent it is to to have that that second arm and, and that avenue into to somewhere else but just talking about your playing career we should mention that this isn't a video arm of the podcast i should maybe add a video aspect to it but they're in the background when you connected on the zoom call you've got the wonderful cheltenham town shirt is that from is that from one of the promotion seasons from the playoff final yeah so that that was actually the match worn shirt so it's actually covered in wood because the pitch wasn't the greatest that day <laughs> but it's that but it's stuck with you is it the cheltenham time it's a good time for you in the career. Yeah, no, it was. It, it, I had a good sort of five or six years within that spell, as you mentioned, around around sort of South Midlands. So Hereford, Cheltenham was sandwiched in the middle of going back to Hereford and a couple of promotions. But yeah, specifically around Cheltenham, I think, you know, John Ward and Keith Downing, who, who were two great coaches, two really good people. And as we mentioned at the start of the call, it was, it was quite bizarre going back and playing with, John Finnegan firstly, and then Craig Armstrong, who, who mm. the three of us were all apprentices at Nottingham Forest, starting out at 16, 17, 18, and to go full circle and then to be playing together at, I think I was 28 at the time, and actually being part of a successful side that I look back on and I think, you know, we had some great players in terms of, you know, Martin Devaney, Grant McCann, Brian Wilson, yeah. JJ Melligan, I look through that team and we had a particularly good team, but I think more than anything, it was the spirit that, that the players and the squad had together that that got us through and probably overachieved at the time, um, you know, with, with the budget we had back then. But yeah, brilliant, really fond memories looking back at my time at the club. And how did the time with John Ward affect your philosophy on coaching and what's the most important thing? Was it the, the human side and his demeanour? Because I was fortunate enough to meet him actually at a Cheltenham game before the pandemic, obviously, but it was, yeah, it touched me that he was, he seemed to be a very kind of aware human being, sort of quite an empathic guy. Yeah, I think it was just his personal touch, which I'd never really uh, experienced before. You know, he was just, and people probably, he probably gets sick of hearing it, but, you know, just genuinely a really nice person. And he cared about you, what your life was like. He, he was never too high, never too low. Uh, I think my first year there, we had a relatively young side, apart from two or three of us. And, you know, as a player it got you looking forward to going into training, which I, I can definitely tell you that wasn't the case with some clubs previously. Yeah. And everyone were looking forward to going in on the Monday morning, going in on a Thursday, you know, even if you'd won, lost or drawn, it was it was just a great part to be up. But he just knew how to, as I mentioned, to, to have that personal contact with you. And it felt, as I mentioned, it did feel strange in the early days, you know, come on, let's go and have a cup of tea, see what see what's going on. And it was a bit... Well, he's, he was almost spying it. He wants to know what you're getting up to. If you had two or three pints, you should have. But there was genuinely no, th th there was none of that thought would be in his mind. He just cared about every single person, whether you were, you know, squad player number 25 or you were the most important player. Everyone sort of got the same treatment, which I think is a, is a, is a reflection of the man that he was. Yeah, I suppose performance must be so much down to the other stuff going on in your life, can't it? We sort of neglect that sometimes when we look at players and we rant about our team that's not playing well or whatever. You forget that maybe they've got a wife who's due to go into labour, maybe they've had a heavy tax bill, maybe their dad's poorly. It's, there's a myriad of things, isn't there? I suppose just allowing the, the manager allowing you to kind of retell that side of it probably is liberating in a way. Yeah, and I think going back to the early days in my playing career, a lot of the the environments I was in tended to be ruled by fear. So, mm. you know, that was what managers thought was the right thing to do at the time, probably only because they experienced it in their playing career. But, you know, 
I definitely can think of one or two managers who I wouldn't have wanted to go and see to say, listen, my wife's pregnant or I've got an issue. Can I have the morning off because of X, Y, Z? Where that was definitely not the case um, at Cheltenham. And I think, uh, you know, we've mentioned it a few times now. I think if you can create that environment, the players will do anything for you. They'll run through brick walls. If they know that you're on their side, you get that extra 10, 20% out of them. Um, so, you know, he, he knew what he was doing, uh, John, and particularly Keith as well. Steve, you're very self-deprecating how you classify yourself as a journeyman striker, but what was that journey like? And obviously sharing it, I suppose, with Craig and, and Finners when you reunited at Cheltenham, when you reflected on, on what you'd been like as, as young lads and, and then progressed, did you set out thinking, you know, would you, as you mentioned, Forest Premier League team, Teddy Sheringham, I think, scored the first goal in the, the Premier League, did he, or something like that? It was certainly the first live Sky Sports goal, wasn't it, against Liverpool cutting in from the, the left-hand side? I remember there was a great, a great goal. And then you had um, people like Nigel Clough in the team and uh, Charles you mentioned that the, the full back and, and they later on had Stan Collymore and Brian Roy in that era did you did you feel that it was it was something that was coming a Premier League career was beckoning was there a period of acceptance that wasn't going to happen it must have been a difficult one finding your your feet and what your level was yeah it was but I think that's the case with every footballer I think um, you know we, we'd most footballers now, particularly us three at the time, had been with Forest since about 13, 14. And mm. as much as every kid probably has aspirations to be a professional footballer, you know, the statistics are alarmingly low. But I think once you actually get into there as an apprentice and then, you know, us three also then made it as professionals, you think, well, actually, yeah, I have got half a chance. And I think Craig was probably the most highly thought about of all three because particularly in that first year, as mentioned, with Cluffy, he, he brought him into the first-team squad, but he didn't make his debut for a bit longer. And I, mm. I, I refer back to my sort of debut. I, I'd been part of the first-team squad, of, I don't know, 18, 19, never, never even made it onto the bench. I mean, I remember being in the hotel. Uh, we were away <laughs> at Wimbledon, and Frank Clark, who was manager at the time, yeah. uh, we had, a, I don't know, a pre-match meeting, probably sort of 12 o'clock, and he used to have the, the flip chart paper, team meeting, you know, turned over the flip chart and my name was starting. <laughs> wow. I think it was up from Brian Roy and I think Jason Lee at the time. And I just, I, it, it caught me on the hop, if I'm honest, because I never even made the bench before. And all yeah. of a sudden I was starting, it was like, oh Christ, never even had any time to to, to phone my family or to give them a heads up. Did, did, did that work though? Was that a tactic so you didn't have too much time to worry about it? Was that the approach from Frank Clark? Um, I genuinely don't know to this day. Uh, maybe you just thought I could handle it or not, but uh, yeah, and, and, and it was just, you know, bizarre, but fantastic at the same time. And I think Vinnie Jones was playing in the side at the time, Dean Holdsworth. And I look back and I think we, we ended up losing 1-0. But I remember thinking at the time, I remember coming home and I think, uh, you know, I've my debut for not even college first and foremost, but playing in the Premier League. Wow, that's it. And I think there's a little bit of I've made it. Yeah. Um, but obviously, you know, again, I, some of the stuff that we're trying to preach, there's an awful long way to go. And, um, and then yeah, there were varying... Um, changes in management of Forest. I was in favour, out of favour, in favour, out of favour, mm. sent on the road. Did, Dave, did, Dave, did Dave Bassett like you? Because I imagine you might suit his style or not. Well, uh, yeah, but again, I really got on with, with, with Harry and he gave me a, a couple of appearances. And I remember the, the season we got promoted back to the Premier League, I was involved in, in some capacity every first team game, either on the bench or in the squad, always training with them. And mm. he gave me a new two-year contract as a result of us getting promoted and, and, and the part I played. And I was like, great, great. <laughs> but then literally two, I signed it two weeks later, he pulled me in the office, in the off-season, he went, right, I've just got 15 million, which was even now an enormous amount of money, but back then was probably the equivalent of, you know, 30, yeah. 40, 50 million. And he went, I'm going to sign another two strikers. So, you know, choice number was, five. Was, was that for Collymore, was it? Or what, who was that? No, Stan had already, Stan had already yeah. departed there. I think, yeah. Christ, I can't even remember who signed off the back of that. But it was just an absolute body blow because I thought, right, you know, Dave's at least going to be part of it. You know, promotion win manager for at least 12 months, probably. And, mm. you know, but again, on reflecting, that's football. You've got, to, you've got to appreciate the highs with the lows. And I think I knew then that, that was me pretty much accepting that my forest career was over and I'd be moving on. How, how, good, was, um, how good was Stan Collymore just while we were there? Because as a, as a little boy watching him, he just had some ridiculous attributes that I know we can work and everyone does the 10,000 hours, but there were just things that he could do that it's hard to coach. It, do you know what? The, the best two strikers I can remember in my time there was Stan and Pierre van Hooydonk. And they oh, were yeah. two of the best strikers that I can remember. And, and they were totally different players, but 
going back to Stan, he was almost like the kid in the playground mm. who had his own ball. He, he yeah. could do things with left and right foot. He'd take on five men. He was quick. He was strong. He was six foot two. He had everything. And even in that, that, the year we got promoted from the championship into the Premier League, he was just absolutely phenomenal. And I think there was potentially a few doubts of well whether all the players could repeat that success in the Premier League. But I think the first year we finished third. And mm. I think he, he was brilliant. You know, probably single-handedly won us a load of games. And we know we had a number of issues around a dressing room with him at that time, with, with his lifestyle. But yeah. we, we and pretty much the team accepted it because he was so good on the pitch. And I think that's the case. If, if players are delivering on Saturday at three o'clock, you'll forgive them a lot of the other issues that go with it. And yeah, I, those two in particular were two standouts for me, particularly the way that I used to admire them in my position. So phenomenal players, yeah. Just striking the ball, wasn't it? For, with his left foot and right foot, as you say, sort of 25, 30 yards, he could he could beat keepers. And what's amazing when you reflect is, I don't even know how many England caps he got, but what a, what a sort of plethora of England strikers there were at that time. You had obviously Alan Shearer, Teddy Sheringham, we've talked about, unless Ferdinand was in the mix, uh, Ian Wright, Robbie Fowler. It's phenomenal when you look back, people like Nick Barnby were floating around as a sort of second striker option, Chris Sutton as well. It was, and a lot of these people didn't really get regularly capped. I mean, look at the England squad now, he sort of it switched to a sort of plethora of wide forwards and, and fullbacks. But back then it was, it was a lot of centre-halves and a lot of centre-forwards. Yeah, I, th I think probably, you know, the, the latter, the, the more recent squads is a, is a reflection of the way the English players have dwindled down the years. I think going mm. back to the you know, early, mid, late 90s, there was a number of English players you, you could pick from. Yeah. Um, and you're right. I mean, you know, I can remember, you know, obviously Shearer and you're 96 and um, him and Teddy formed that, you know, that partnership. But yeah, it was just fantastic era for, for English football, wasn't it? But in particular, there was a large amount of attacking players uh, that, that you could pick from. Where where nowadays, it tend you know you look at it now, and there's probably a large amount again. But I think mm. it's probably by pure fortune that a number have made it through. Um, and even now, I wouldn't say it's easy to get an England cap, but I look at how long you'd have had to have played. I can remember, you know, David Platt and having the conversation with him as a, as a Villa fan. Yeah. He also took over as Forest manager when I was there, and it, you know he had to play well in the in the well what was the you know first division for two or three years before he got a cap and I think now you can almost potentially have a good six or nine months and you get a cap so <laughs> times have definitely changed. They have did you ever play against Villa? Would that have been a big moment for you or just I didn't I know I was part of the squad a couple of times but uh only in the reserves played on Villa Park a few times but uh didn't unfortunately which would have been a great personal occasion. Yeah, I remember David Platt in that Villa team. Tony Daly, people like that as well, wasn't there? Tony Cascarino was there for a while. That was that it, right? yeah, yeah, what a team. Yeah, then, you know, even going back to, he's still calling God now, Paul McGrath. And, yeah. Um, yeah, great side, great side. Dean Saunders up front, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, the late Daly Natkinson scored that wonder goal, didn't he, as well? I think the first first season of the Premier League against Oldham, was it? Or Wimbledon, one of the two. Wimbledon, blue, yeah. Blue yeah. shirt, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I always get the, the shirt colours kind of confuse me sometimes about who, who the teams were. But what was the difference, Steve, when you, and it's interesting because I tried to apply this podcast, it's called Sport and Life because it's trying to learn the lessons of, A, why I've just turned 40, I'm still obsessed with football and what we take out of it to, to wider life. What do you think the defining moments were or ingredients in, in the players that were Premier League who went on to have that level of career and those that below? Because obviously you had a lot of the same practice repetition you know the Malcolm Gladwell stuff what was the difference the ingredients there was it was it a mindset tweak do you feel or was it genetics maybe people talk about that natural skill as well Ooh, difficult one to answer I think a lot of the the players particularly who went on to achieve really uh, successful careers definitely had that rhino skin mm. uh, I mean you, you mentioned Stan Collymore and whether he, he'd go through nine out of 10 times and blaze it over, which he never did anyway. <laughs> and the players will have all lambasted him and criticised him on the pitch. He didn't care because he knew that the next one he'd score. Mm. Um, whether they're on the the back end of a slaughtering from home and away fans, they just didn't care. And, and I think now there's a lot more self-doubt within the game. Um, mm. and, and I'm not saying that's with everyone, but I think you really need to have that single-mindedness, the mindset that I'm only in this for myself. <laughs> Difficult one to balance because you don't want to do that to the detriment of your teammates, mm. but your playing career is your career. It's not anyone else's and you have to really focus on on your own. And I, I also refer back to 
to, to the lifestyle which we, we've spoken about i can remember the first few years you know drinking culture was still yeah still around um nutrition wasn't really looked after and, and genuinely my first <laughs> fish, fish and chips on the way back was it well it was it was like that before the game i was just, my first <laughs> pre-match was steak and kidney pie and chips genuinely <laughs> wow. you know, people just didn't know it, was, it was a forest year and people just didn't know it, it was like well that's what's that's that's what's gone in in the game for years and yeah you know the, the game now you look at the top players in the European Championships that happen at the moment. And, you know, in my previous role with the PFA, we've done study visits and gone to watch tournaments up close. And when you see them, they are, they are finely tuned athletes. I, mm. You know, it's almost you can look at them as Formula One cars. They, you know, they can cover the ground now, the distance they do, the high speed sprints, they're playing pretty much a game every three days, particularly in the last 12 months with the pandemic. And they are absolute athletes. And I look back now and I think, could we have done that? Well, mm. definitely not. But I also think if the education was there in terms of how to look after your body, how to recover ice baths, nutrition, uh, maybe we'd have all had slightly different careers to what we had. It's but interesting. Yeah. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because there's always different perspectives. I listened to Peter Crouch's podcast recently, and he was reflecting that he wouldn't want to be coming into the professional game now because he was talking about the intense documentation of, you know, wearing monitors and and, and things for, for training and people trying to fake their sprints because they were running to the toilet afterwards and and all this stuff and how, how detailed it was and regimented. And in the sense that he felt from his long career, 20 years plus, he was nearly 40 when he retired, that actually some of the fun had gone out of it. So do you feel there's a, there's a balance? I mean, obviously these guys are making at the elite level millions and millions of pounds. So you don't feel too much sympathy for them per se, but has that dynamic shifted a, a little bit negatively in a way that it's too serious? Because it is supposed to be joyful as well, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, I do agree with that. I, I think there's an element of, you know, football is a game. Uh, mm. and, and I look back at Shank, Shankly's quote, you know, football's, more important than anything else more and, and i think well it's not it's not life or death mm. um, you know you, you need to have a sense of um the world that's going on around you and, and i think with a, a number of players that i played with we wouldn't have been this i look back at my time at forest and i think brilliant time should i should i or could i have been more professional absolutely but mm. would i have changed those days no and i think the way the games develop now we we see players coming out for interviews that they, they tend to be robotic they've all had media training there's not enough personality and fun yeah. within the game and i also think that you know it is to be enjoyed and i keep saying that to my son now who's actually at cheltenham is just going into his second year scholarship and I'm trying to explain to him, well, you really have to be dedicated and disciplined to be a footballer, but but don't forget, you can switch off and enjoy life as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't as... have to be drinking, does it? It could just be having fun with your no. friends, watching films, whatever Absolutely. it is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm trying to encourage him to find a hobby outside the game. And as much as, you know, diet and nutrition is a massive part of it, well, you can still go and have a burger and you can still <laughs> do this, but it's all got to be in moderation. You know, you can't yeah. do that six days a week. And I think that, that that has to be viewed. And I think, again, that that needs to be, particularly to younger players, that needs to be thrust upon them. Because mm. at the moment, I'm seeing two extremes. I'm seeing those that are ultra committed. And one of those issues that we mentioned earlier is if they actually fall out of the game, they're going to actually detest the game. Yeah. And they'll go into some other industry. And what I'm trying to encourage my footballers, my son, sorry, is to stay in, stay in love with it. Mm. You know, just... Be, be a football fan, be a football person. I still want to watch him as his dad, wherever his career ends up. So um, there, there has to be a sense of um, moderation about how you view the game, I think, personally. Keeping that joy from when we were kids, when we first played, which is when we fell in love with it, wasn't we? We weren't worried about pressure and responsibility and points and, and winning and losing. It was just the joy of kicking a ball with your, your friends and running around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And But again, I think that is probably lost within, within some uh, areas of the game. Mm. But can it help, from Steve, from a coaching perspective, if you can you can reawaken that joy in a in a player? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. We're, we're talking a lot internally now uh, within the FA about getting that joy back within to coaching, and I think even with some of the younger coaches that are coming through, you know, some of them, you know, are putting in some some hard yards and earning experience coaching some some younger age groups, but. They're treating it as though it's the FA Cup final. I'm like, they're under 12. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. play football and have a little bit of fun. And they don't yeah. care if they win, lose, or draw, with all due respect. They'll, they'll come back to training for the next session and they'll turn up for the next no. game. It's the coaches that have the problem. Oh, I can't believe it. They just want to score or do a Cruyff turn or, or something. Yeah. That's what you remember as a kid, What you, your part in the yeah. game, yeah. 
It is, and I, and I, I you know, I, I look back to, to some of the goals that I scored, and I'd celebrate a one-yard tapping off my backside as much <laughs> as a forty-yarder. So, a goal's a goal, but I think we 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 as coaches and managers miss out and don't see that joy in the players' faces. And if they are doing certain things within the game, let's give them credit for it. Mm. Um, you absolutely. You mentioned self-doubt being a problem. Is that a cultural shift you feel that's that's come in? Because I suppose we're talking a lot about mental health and, and feelings and stuff, but sometimes I think there's maybe a, a conflict because there's still a, a harsh reality to life as a footballer. You mentioned the difficulty of actually making it. And in, in, in wider life as well, we find out that a lot of companies we all work for are subject to financial pressures beyond our control where we, you know, it, it, it's a sort of tough, it's still a tough world out there. Is there a, a contradiction there for, for young people coming through? I think I think it's difficult. I think you know, not not just in football, but there's always self doubt. Um, mm. There's always that moment when you reflect on on your game or training. You think, could I have done that better? Yeah, but again, it's football's a game. It's there to be enjoyed. It's there to be loved. And um, I think you know, there's the old adage, isn't it? If you if you find a job that you'll enjoy, you'll never work a day in your life. Um, no. And I think you have to be passionate about what you want to do. And I think there's always going to be setbacks, particularly in elite sport and in football. And it's how you deal with those setbacks, how you, how you pick yourself up, dust yourself off and, and, and move on with it. But, but for some within the game and in other sports and in other industries, they find those moments extremely difficult and they can't pick themselves up. And I think that's where there need to be um, some aspects of support out there uh, for those individuals. But for some, as I mentioned before, they'll have that rhino skin and they don't see an issue in it, but it, it is mm. a contradiction. Absolutely. Yeah, difficult. It's so hard to make it, but you need that piercing focus and almost obsession perhaps to, to get there. But as you say, having a balanced perspective and other hobbies is is probably key. Are you coming down to what to watch your boy play next season, hopefully, in, in Cheltenham? What position does it does he play? Uh, he plays up front like me. Yeah. Uh, yeah good season last year. He scored 25, so I'm hoping wow. he'll get a few more this year. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it when, when the pandemic will allow, allows, as soon as I can get in there, I will. And what, what's his first name? Uh, Zach. Zach. Nice. And is he is he similar to you? Can you see the old Guinan style, the running gate and things like that? Yeah, I can. He actually he came and watched me yesterday in that charity game, so he gave me a little bit of stick on the way home. But um, <laughs> no, I can. I can actually see see some similar traits. I, I'm hoping he will be better than me, however. <laughs> and how far is he? What, what age group is he now? Is he? Uh, he's in the youth team, so he's just, he's 17, so he's just going into his second year scholarship. Wow. So he might get a shot at the first team bench. You never know. At some point. No, fingers crossed. You know, it's like anything else, as we've just mentioned. He's, you know, it's pre-season now, isn't it? Um, he's just got to give everything into pre-season, uh, get as fit as he can, and hopefully stay, you know, touchwood injury-free. Steve, I know you've got a meeting coming up. Just wanted to, to leave with, with your coaching philosophy or anything that you could leave us with in terms of your approach to what you do. I know you're transitioning players into coaching at the moment, but what's your feeling on, on the sort of principles of coaching? Well, <laughs> I think we mentioned it a, a few times. I think Definitely, I view the person before the player. I think fundamentally that's one of the most important things, building connections with the individuals, understanding them as a person uh, off the pitch first before on the pitch. Um, I think looking beyond that, there's there's a multitude of things that I would look at and want from A, my players, the environment I work in, but I think that's the most important thing you can possibly get. And I think you... I've mentioned it with John. I think you want to create an environment, and I personally would, where players look forward to coming with you. The rubbing the hands mm. can't wait. It's exciting. It's varied. It's interesting. They know you're not going to get too high or too low. And ultimately, what would I what would I want to do in 10, 15 years' time if I if I was walking down the street and I saw one of my players, I'd I'd want them to make the effort to come over and say hello to me. That's mm. not to get involved in a 30-minute deep-level conversation. <laughs> but yeah. I'd just like to be respected. And ultimately, I'd like them to go, do you know what? He was all right. He tried his best for me. He knew his stuff and he was a good guy. That's what I'd like to would like to be viewed upon in 10, 20, 30 years. But I think that is that is difficult because with the with the pressure on coaching and management now, people are desperate to get results. And I think mm. they sometimes forgo and forget those those moments of people are just human and they're just, you know, you should treat everyone the way that you'd want to be treated. Yeah, you don't want anyone to lose their enthusiasm, whether it's a coach or player, but certainly your enthusiasm shines through, Steve. I'm sure in, in football and life, people stick with you and it's great that Finners has connected us. Really appreciate your time and, and I hope to see you down at Cheltenham maybe one day in the in the coming coming seasons as well. It'd be great to, to catch up in person. No, oh, no, I'll definitely be down. As soon as I can get down there, I will be down. Don't worry about it, Ed. Good man. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, good, good, to, good to catch you up. Thank you.
love that. And it's, uh, I think he's personifies the actual concepts we're talking about there. Steve Guinan, senior professional game player to coach, lead at the FA now, but through that storied, well-traveled career, took him places like Cambridge United, the loan spells, I believe, at Burnley in the early stage of his career as well, and crew at, at one point all over the country, as he says. He knows it instinctively now, the back of his hand. He doesn't need a map or a sat-nav. Um, but just that passion for football still shines through that he didn't take it to the seriousness, the pressure, the external aspects of having a job, having bills to pay and seeing it in that context still seems to retain that joy. And it's great that he's advising his son, Zach Guinan, to be dedicated, but also to have that fun element to it and that joyful element. So that's great. Steve Guinan, you can follow on Twitter, at Guines1, at G-U-I-N-S-1. It's on LinkedIn as well. Uh, very much uh, worth getting in touch with him and just following his his path and, and where he goes because he's a, a learned guy but also a fun fun man and very enthusiastic and passionate so thank you to him thank you to the sponsors as ever bang olufsen of cheltenham and serene av specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations and remember if you're looking to optimize your immunity and you would like a discount for the food-based supplement company cytoplan head to cytoplan.co.uk c-y-t-o-p-l-a-n.co.uk and the discount code associated with the podcast and thank you to cytoplan for it is draper 10 r d-r-a-p-e-r all capital letters the numerals one zero and the capital letter r hope there's a shift now as we edge out the pandemic towards preemptive healthcare, looking at maybe saving the nhs through things supplementation being perhaps the the cherry on top of the the cake but you know the, the foundations of sleep health diet exercise movement have you break it down but just making us a little bit healthier particularly in the, the uk and if you're listening in the usa you may have similar sentiments about um the sort of state of, of our health generally so hopefully we'll, we'll turn towards a more positive future as we get back to quote unquote normality thank you for listening to the podcast guys really appreciate it if you could rate it on itunes or whatever platform you're listening on fantastic or just tell a friend always makes a big difference actually and always sometimes the most meaningful thing isn't it you can share it on social media but if you share it to someone and say this has really been useful or interesting hopefully not to aggrandize myself but um that might uh, be more of a powerful reference and it builds from there and uh yeah thank you for listening appreciate it i'm ed draper sports broadcaster in the uk at sky sports but uh, elsewhere worked across different sports boxing football rugby and just fascinated by what we can learn from sport and apply to the, the real world everyday life hence the name sport and life thank you guys go well and I'll speak to you soon. Bye for now.